Welcome to Atmospheric Tales, a podcast that amplifies stories and experiences related to air pollution and climate change from around the world. I'm your host Shahzad Ghani and welcome to another episode of the Atmospheric Tales podcast. On this podcast, we invite guests to discuss various themes connected to air pollution and climate change such as science, policy, journalism, activism and more. Please reach out to us if you would like to suggest episode topics, guests or be an interviewer on one of our episodes. Our contact information can be found on our website atmosphericales.com. Our interviewer for this episode is Grace Formentin. Grace is an environmental scientist working in the Perth Air and Noise team at GHT in Perth, Australia. After completing honors research in air pollution meteorology, Grace started a graduate position at GHT in 2018. She now works on air dispersion modeling assessments for waste to energy plants, road projects, residential planning, mining and other sectors. Grace contributes to technical assessments as well as qualitative assessments. She has undertaken indoor air quality monitoring for occupational hygiene reporting. Grace is an identical twin and we hope that we have the right one on the show today. Our guest today is a professor in the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at the Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, Australia. She is also the director of the International Laboratory for Air Quality and Health at QUT, which is a World Health Organization's collaborating center on air quality and health. She conducts fundamental and applied research in the interdisciplinary field of air quality and its impact on human health and the environment with a specific focus on science of airborne particulate matter. She is an author of over 600 journal papers, book chapters and conference papers. She has been acting as an advisor to the World Health Organization and is a past president of the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate. I'm excited to welcome our guest today, Dr. Lydia Morawska. Welcome to the show, Lydia and Grace. Lydia, I'm very excited to meet you today. Thank you for being here. You are one of the most highly cited scientists in the field of air pollution and public health. Your research over the decades has spanned themes such as environmental tobacco smoke, vehicular pollution, atmospheric particulate matter, and indoor air pollution. However, you started your career as a physicist, earning your PhD in 1982 for your work on radon and its progeny. Can you tell us a bit about your journey through these various themes and your motivations along the way? Uh, thanks for inviting me to, um, uh, to discuss my career and uh, all the scientific in, uh, topics uh, involved. Um, the, uh, my journey actually started much earlier than this. It's not just during the PhD, but I'd say it was um, when I was in the primary school around grade five, maybe six, when I developed interest in um, specific interest in physics, and this was nuclear physics. I was interested in all uh, science and not only science, scientific topics, but somehow nuclear physics was um, the uh, area which attracted me and I decided to be a nuclear physicist. Um, this interest continued so I finished primary school and then I was in high school. This interest continued. I was the best in, in my class in, in, in math, in, uh, in physics and in other sciences. Um, I remember then my family was a bit hesitant uh, about this career choice. One of the reasons was they were saying, well, uh, at that time in Poland, because that's where I was born and uh, where I was in school, 
there was only one nuclear reactor. So they were saying, uh, well, how are you going to build your career on one workplace in the country? At that stage, that interna international collaboration, as it is now, was probably not um, so uh, extended. Um, but uh, somehow I didn't listen to this. I thought, this is my interest, and uh, I won't worry about this, what, what will be the job situation later. So that's what I did. I started um, my university degree, and I got my degree in nuclear physics. And from then on, I could continue on the, uh, this, uh, being a nuclear physicist. And by that stage, I knew all the possibilities in terms of uh, international collaboration, access to major uh, facilities uh, in Europe and in the world. But towards the end of my master, my master was part of the, uh, of the master uh, thesis was part of the degree. Uh, I got um, attracted to the area of environmental radioactivity. Uh, it was quite complex, obviously, anything to do with the environment is quite complex, and the processes involved. Um, so then I decided to do actually my master in the, uh, in the, uh, on the topic of environmental uh, radioactivity. That was the last year of my undergraduate degree, how it was, the, how, that's how it was taken. And then the choice of the uh, topic for PhD was radon and radon progeny in the, uh, in, the, uh, in the atmosphere, which was continuation of the topic of environmental radioactivity. So this is how I um, uh, transitioned from, from nuclear physics to environmental radioactivity. This topic was very interesting, but towards the end of my PhD, I started um, developing the thought that this area, scientifically, will be exhausted. Um, after completion of my PhD, I got a postdoc position in Canada, first at the University of um, uh, Hamilton, uh, at the McMaster University in Hamilton, and then at the University of Toronto. And this is when I, um, on the one hand, fully realized that uh, this thought about uh, rayon and rayon progeny, while interesting, very important uh, from the um, perspective of human health, I couldn't see much science more in this. But I was very lucky because there at the University of Toronto, I had an access to um, very good instrumentation, state-of-the-art instrumentation for measuring what's called now uh, ultrafine particles particles uh, in terms of size of uh, starting from a few nanometers going to about um, one micrometer. The importance and the significance of uh, working on this in the context of um, radon and radon progeny, which I was still doing, was that radon progeny attached to atmospheric particles. So for the first time, using this instrumentation, I was able to, to investigate the actual process of attachment. But with this instrumentation, I was also able to have a kind of a preview what's in the air. And then, for the first time, I realized that there are thousands, um, hundreds of thousands of particles in the air. Um, I put the probe outside the window, a busy um, um, street in, uh, in Toronto, and I said, what, what are these particles? Where do they come from? I searched the literature, I couldn't find anything at all. This kind of instrumentation was not uh, um, 
not available, but just only a few universities at the time um, had access to this. And then I realized that this is a completely new field of research, and that's where the scientific novelty. So this directed me towards the field of um, uh, ultrafine particles in the air, atmospheric um, sciences, and atmospheric pollution. And when I um, got my position here at the Queensland uh, University of Technology, which I'm still at the moment, that was the area which I decided to, to develop. So this was my journey to ultrafine particles and to atmospheric science. That's really amazing, Lydia. I'm interested to find out that you knew at such a, long, a young age what you wanted to do with your life and then hear about how it progressed into more of an atmospheric science role. That's very interesting. We'll move on now. While the global attention is on COVID-19 at the moment, there is another recent catastrophe here at home in Australia that we would like to discuss, as it is at the intersection of climate change and air pollution, and that's the Australian bushfires. These fires have burnt millions of acres of land, taken human lives, destroyed buildings, killed an estimated billion animals, and have resulted in some of the worst air quality experience in Australia and even New Zealand, which is thousands of kilometres away. Can you tell the listeners about these bushfires and how they affect both indoor and outdoor air quality? Well, this is a very good question, Grace. Um, of course, I can tell about these bushfires, but uh, I have no doubts that uh, our listeners from around the world have actually seen this, seen on the screen how Australia looked like at the time uh, of the bushfires. Prolonged periods of time, we are talking about weeks and months of bushfires, was something which really, um, I guess, changed the view of the world of what what bushfires are, but also of what climate change is. Bushfires as such, uh, fires, fire is a combustion. This is something which uh, we've been studied, uh, my team and I have been studied uh, in the context of ultrafine particles of any combustion products. So we understand the characteristics of, uh, of bushfires uh, very well. The biggest question is always, when talking about any air pollution sources, what to do to stop the sources from operating. So when we are talking about, um, say, um, uh, traffic emissions, so we can characterize traffic emissions, but the next question is what to do with this information about characterization, what to do to stop the source or to limit human exposure to the pollutants generated from the source. Here we are talking, um, uh, with bushfires, we are talking about source, which as such is very difficult to control. Of course, there are um, all kinds of uh, pro um, uh, protective measures which, we, which are taking uh, back burning and so on, uh, and all the cautions about fire, but at the end, this fire happened, and when the uh, fire starts, Sometimes, like it was uh, last year, it is extremely difficult to stop them. It is not in the same class as stopping, say, traffic emissions or any anthropogenic sources. So this is, this is in my mind, when, um, uh, when this was happening, the fires, in my mind was what to do about this, but on much bigger scale. And it is not the scale of that week and months when this is happening, but what to do to to, to stop this happening. In Australia, as such, we can't completely stop fires. 
files are part of the uh, of the uh, of the system, and files have been uh, part of the uh, of, of the continent burning forests. So this is not something new and or something which is to be stopped as such. But the point is the scale of the fires. We can ask what is the reason for this scale. If you go back or if you read about the forecasts um, related to global uh, climate change, forecasts for Australia, this is exactly what is, has been forecasted. We knew that this is coming, we knew that the country will get uh, drier, and we knew that the um, probability of bushfires will be significantly uh, increased. So this is what is what's happening. So you may now ask, okay, what to do to, to stop it? Of course, Australia as such cannot be the only country stopping it, but globally, we have to stop combustion emissions, we, stop, we have to stop anthropogenic emissions, we have to transition to clean energy. It will take time before the climate will get back to normal, but this, this, this is something which we really need to do. So this is a long-term view and um, part of our work uh, here in my uh, laboratory has been towards the uh, towards this focus of energy transition and how to change from the uh, current uh, uh, industries traffic uh, fully dependent on uh, fossil fuels to uh, clean energies. We've been working, for example, with um, partners in the uh, Pacific Island countries trying to um, develop um, projects and ideas towards transition away from um, cooking on open fire and uh, other elements of transition to clean energies. So this is very important uh, focus of, of what we are doing and what I'm thinking. But on the short term, of course, it's a protection of uh, people exposed to these fires, people who will be exposed to the fire uh, or to the smoke from the fires. And here we are talking about the uh, relationship between indoor and outdoor. How much of that smoke, bushfire smoke, from outdoors um, uh, comes indoors? Indoors, why well, I'm stressing indoors, because indoors where, is where we spend most our lives. 90% or so in developed countries people um, spend indoors. This question was asked um, on numerous occasions during the fires and I was saying well it depends, depends what kind of uh, house, dwelling or building you are in. Buildings, uh, houses in Australia, uh, particularly traditional houses like what we in Queensland we call them Queenslanders, are very open and therefore um, most of the pollution from outside comes inside, so the concentrations could be a bit lower inside, but not much lower. If, on the other hand, you are in a very tight building, modern buildings tend to be tight, or public, health, public buildings uh, like uh, shopping centers are usually very tight, then there's significantly less uh, pollution from inside, uh, from outside, inside. So there are many aspects of this. One may say, okay, so close up the buildings, make them as tight as possible to prevent uh, air pollution. If you do this with um, so-called naturally ventilated houses, like most our, um, uh, our houses are in Australia, 
one of the problems is that you may create other problems, for example, moisture, when everything is too much enclosed. So there is the balance of what to do, how to prevent um, from exposure to air pollution or bushfire smoke when this is happening, but on the other hand, to be able to have uh, houses which are not prone to moisture. And the same goes for uh, mechanically ventilated uh, buildings again. How to um, balance the energy consumption, the tightness uh, related to this or necessary for this, and the uh, prevention from uh, inhalation of bushfire smoke penetrating from outside. So these are quite complex um, issues, and this is something um, which still needs to be better developed for protection of people during uh, bushfire uh, events, which are going to be happening. So this is one of uh, other uh, programs which I have in mind that we should look more seriously at. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think you're right that the impact of the bushfires, it's definitely different to anthropogenic sources of air pollution, as bushfires are obviously an inherent part of Australia. However, I think most listeners would agree that they're now occurring on a larger scale due to climate change. But on the short-term side of things, it's interesting to wonder what we can do about the air pollution that comes from the bushfires. I know I've experienced um, the bushfire smoke when you wake up in the morning and you can smell it in your house, but what can you really do about it? So that's a very interesting point you make. What are some of the near and long-term health effects of these air pollution episodes? Can you tell us how scientists like yourself estimate the health effects of air pollution and separate them from other factors like socioeconomic status, nutrition and temperature, for example? First aspect of this, what are the health effects? I would turn it around and I would say what are not the health effects. The more air pollution is studied and its impact on health, the more it comes obvious that basically every part of our body, every organ and every system is affected by, by air pollution. Um, one would think that the main organ or the main system is, is our lung respiratory system because that's where the pollution comes, it's, it's inhaled. So this is the first organ, but as I said, it's basically every organ which is uh, affected uh, by, by air pollution. The, having said this, separating the effects from, uh, of air pollution from any other effects is very difficult. I'm just going to say some general aspects of this because I'm not an epidemiologist. And this is an um, area of epidemiology, how these uh, things are done and separated. One of the difficulties here is that the impacts of air pollution are not immediate and cannot be linked in an obvious way to air pollution. Let's say if somebody um, develops lung cancer, so uh, the question is, has this person developed lung cancer because the person um, was exposed some years ago, lung cancer is usually um, a disease developing for a longer time, to air pollution in his or her use somewhere there, or is it because some other impact? If somebody has stroke uh, today, is this stroke because today uh, or in the last two days um, pollution uh, was very high, 
or is the stroke because of um, many other aspects or many other factors. So this is very difficult. If somebody has a, um, let's say, infectious disease which manifests itself in a way which can be said, this is the disease, but it's not like this with air pollution. With air pollution, finding that causal relationship is, is very difficult. So that's why it's, norm, it's done by, um, uh, through epidemiological studies. Well, of course, the causal effects are studied in, in different ways, so we need to understand the mechanism. The area of, epi of epidemiology is um, very complex in that sense that uh, all the factors which affect, on this, uh, which affect this particular health endpoint has to be taken into consideration. So, say we are talking about the impact of bushfire smoke. But if it's happening um, at the same time when the temperature is very high, temperature also has an impact on health, but also many other aspects. So studying this um, uh, epidemiologically, the data of all related um, parameters need to be taken into account. And one difficulty of this is that um, many of such events cannot be predicted. So when we are talking about the impact epidemiology of, uh, of um, bushfire smoke, so it is not usually that the researchers have the study design ready. The, um, the uh, people um, who they would include as uh, subjects in the study ready. And when bushfire smoke starts, then the study starts. It's not like this. It's usually not uh, predictable. Therefore, such studies are often done retrospectively and retrospectively, it's not that easy to get uh, all the relevant data. So for this reason, this is extremely uh, difficult. In my um, uh, field, a particular difficulty is linking ultrafine particles and health. Uh, you may have heard about uh, other measure of um, air pollution um, in terms of particles in the air, PM2.5 and PM10. In most of the countries uh, uh, around the world, these parameters are set as national standards. Now, in each case, just to make it simple, this is, this is mass concentration of particles smaller than uh, 2.5 micrometers or smaller than 10. So you can imagine this, you've got a, say, a filter, you um, run air through a filter, you collect a, what you collect, you then weigh, and this is mass. Of course, you needed to have something at the inlet to let only the particle of the size of you are interested. So this is um, that's that's how the epidemiology of um, airborne particulate matter uh, has been established and led to understanding of the health effects and the uh, health guidelines set up by the World Health Organization and national standards. But one of the important aspects is that. The main pollution sources, anthropogenic sources, which are combustion sources, they all emit particles which are very small in the class of um, ultrafine particles. So we say smaller than about 100 nanometers. So you may say, okay, so what about it? What's the, what's the issue? If we collect mass of all particles below, say, 2.5 on a filter, we collect these particles as well. Yes, that's correct. But the problem is that they have so little mass that we don't even notice that they were collected. 
yet they um, usually um, um, constitute the most of the toxins in the air and being small they can penetrate deep into our respiratory tract. Objects as small as this in the air, when we are talking about objects of nanometers, nanometers is basically uh, bigger than of the order of molecular size. So you can imagine how difficult it is, first of all, to study this, and then to be able to distinguish what is the role of the ultrafine particles on various health effects compared to the larger particles measured as PM2.5. I've been working with a, a number of colleagues around the world, uh, epidemiologists, toxicologists, and we've been trying to disentangle the impacts and also from uh, looking at retrospective data to build up a better understanding of what ultrafine particles do to human health compared with larger particles. But this is just one example and one area of epidemiology where, where in principle we know why these particles would have uh, health effects, toxicology of the particles, ability to get into the respiratory tract, but how difficult for epidemiology is it to find out uh, and quantify this impact. It's interesting to hear that every organ and system in our bodies is affected by air pollution because generally when we think of air pollution, I personally generally think of lung capacity and things like asthma. Just for our listeners, can you explain what is meant by the term epidemiology? It is linking the exposure to, in this case, I'm talking exposure to pollutant with the, with the health effect. So the, the question is how many, how many people are affected by a particular exposure? Yeah, and I guess it would get very difficult to separate you know, one cause and effect from another, because like you said, often it's linked to a few things like fires as well as temperature. That's, that's the complexity. So many of us spend most of our time in indoor environments, particularly at the moment. What sources of air pollution in our homes should we be worried about and how can we reduce our exposure to indoor air pollution? Well, this is a very very big field and it very much depends where you are and what you are doing. I mentioned a little while ago um, our work with the Pacific Island countries uh, in relation to um, household air pollution and there the problem is the open fire burning and uh, basically 90% of people in the Pacific Island countries uh, who don't have access to electricity that's how they cook every day, several times a day, which means women and, and young children, particularly young children before they uh, reach school age, they are exposed to this pollution uh, from this open fire burning all the time and being in very close proximity to fires. So this is this particular area of um, Pacific Island countries, but of course uh, this, um, there are many other countries and parts of the world which are uh, don't have access to electricity and, be, and um, cook on fossil fuels and heat their houses on uh, fossil fuels. And this, is really, this, is re this relates to which has uh, uh, implications. In um, houses in Australia, we normally don't do uh, this. We don't, do, uh, we don't cook on open fires. 
uh, we don't use combustion sources apart from entertainment. And this is part of the um, issue which I point out uh, often, that we've removed um, pollution in terms of open fire burnings, but we brought it back in terms of entertainment. Think of candles, how many times we're in an environment where uh, there are candles all around to, for ambience. It is nice. I, I personally like this uh, view of the um, candles, but this is simply air pollution. So any kind of combustion which we bring inside our houses is air pollution, no matter, no matter how we like this, how nice it is, it is air pollution we should avoid. The same goes for any other forms of entertainment, uh, which is not that much indoors, any, uh, any fires we burn for, for pleasure. It's nice, it's ambience, but it should be avoided. In terms of other uh, possible sources of air pollution indoors, um, well, the outdoor is normally the, the main source and most of the pollutants are coming from, from outdoors, particularly in, uh, in cities. And in cities, we've got traffic, we've got other anthropogenic sources. And dependently on the type of houses, like we discussed before, uh, concentration indoors could be as high as outdoors. But in terms of other specific sources, specific to indoors, um, there could be a whole um, a range of um, the whole chemistry going on inside. Uh, going on inside because of the um, chemicals we use for different purposes. Well, for cleaning, for, um, for disinfecting, for painting, for uh, just think of the arsenal of bottles you have at home of chemicals, which can be sources of air pollution. Other important sources, well, it depends, and it depends to what extent they are, they are used. But basically, the less chemistry is used inside, the, the better. The same goes for um, building products and materials. Uh, some of them are low emitting, but there are products which are quite high emitting and emitting for a long time. I'm sure everybody has an experience of um, walking in, into a newly painted room or a house and this smell. After a while, we get used to this smell. Of course, after a while, the smell goes away. But this smell, it's, it is smell of something new, something uh, newly painted. But this means that we are inhaling pollution. So again, the uh, less we inhale and the better products we use, which do not emit pollutants into the air, the less we are exposing our body to harmful products. So this, these are some of the... Um, indoor sources of pollution in kind of environments uh, like in Australian houses. Yeah, that's a really good point, Lydia, about the cleaning products. I mean, we're very lucky in Australia to enjoy relatively clean air. However, we then introduce this air pollution into our own homes with chemicals and cleaning products and painting and things like that. So airborne disease transmission is an important topic given its potential role in the rapid spread of COVID-19. However, there seems to be some disconnect on this issue between the aerial cell science and the medical science community. You recently wrote an article with more than 30 leading scientists in the field titled, How Can Airborne Transmission of COVID-19 Indoors Be Minimized? 
What are the differences between droplets and aerosols in the context of disease transmission and the implications for COVID-19? Well, I realise that this is um, a, a bit complex for people from outside the field and often this question has been asked, what's the difference between aerosol and droplets? And I respond that there's no difference. This is just different terminology. Aerosols, uh, which are particles in the air, they can be either solid or liquid. So solid could be just think about the uh, carbon uh, particle emitted from combustion. It could be liquid, like a uh, um, when when there's fog. So we have liquid droplets in the air, liquid aerosols, or they could be um, a kind of mix. Uh, solid and liquid, so solid core covered with something liquid. So basically aerosol is a more generic term and then if this aerosol is liquid then we call it a droplet. Because in relation to um, um, human, to, to, to the disease transfer, we are talking about um, drop, we are talking about aerosols from human expi expiration, these uh, aerosols are liquid. So therefore, we call them droplets. But in the scientific literature, and for example, in our earlier papers, we usually refer to them as aerosol particles. So as I said, there's no difference. Aerosol and droplet is, is the same. Why there is a difference between uh, the approach between aerosol scientists and medical view on um, disease transmission, it's... Um, it's a bit difficult to point out to the reasons, but from what I understand, it stems from some earlier studies in uh, 1930s, 1940s, which um, came up with a dogma saying that if you are at arm's length from an infected person, you are safe because um, it is only this distance where, where droplets from human expiration could reach another person. So this dogma is very ingrained, as I understand we, in medical training, and that's why um, uh, the medical community considers that this is the distance of importance. These earlier studies, or some of these earlier studies, didn't consider what is the whole range and size range of uh, droplets from human expiratory activities. But even then, it's been quite a long time uh, where there is a there was a, there has been a good understanding that it's not just these very big droplets which are emitted but the whole spectrum. The big droplets, if sometimes you see in front of you somebody really excited, an excited friend or family member talking, telling you something, and then you can see a droplet, uh, a droplet emitted with see this is huge then and falls very close. But during every activity, even the most um, calm and quiet activity, which involves just breathing, we all emit um, droplets. It, the, the size of these droplets is usually uh, smaller. It, after SARS-1, we got involved in the studies of uh, infection transmission. For me personally, this was another, another journey because until that stage, which was 2003, um, ILAC, the International Laboratory for Air Quality and Health, which I lived, uh, was not involved in this kind of studies. We were much uh, more focused on um, anthropogenic emissions of combustion and on ultrafine particles. 
But at the time of SARS-1 in Hong Kong, there was a, a, an outbreak in the Amoy Gardens, a, a large um, complex of apartment buildings, 20-something of them. And one person uh, infected, visited um, uh, his brother for one night, and this one that linked to over 300 people infected in different places, different buildings of this complex. So the questions were asked, how did it happen? Um, very quickly, some papers came up um, suggesting that there were some very fast-running rats which carried the, uh, the virus from one building to another, because otherwise these people didn't have anything to do with each other. They were not in any direct or indirect contact. Then there was a group of epidemiolog uh, epidemiologists, um, a, which was brought there by the WHO, and they were trying to get to the bottom of what happened there, and uh, they couldn't find any links. And then the WHO was um, assembling a, a group of um, aerosol experts to see whether any clues uh, could be found through, um, from the aerosol angle. And I was one of those invited. I must say that I was dreading the idea of going to Hong Kong at the time of SARS. And luckily I didn't have to go, because by that stage the epidemics, uh, epidemic was over and the WHO concluded that uh, there was not enough evidence for us to study. But then I started looking into the uh, literature available on, uh, on this topic, on the topic of infection spread and the topic of, of the role of aerosols. And then I realized, to my absolute amazement, how little, how very little uh, information on this topic uh, was available. That I found basically three studies over a span of uh, 80 years or so, uh, talking in quantitative work, uh, in quantitative way about um, aerosol uh, from human expiration. So I then thought, well, this is this is really a fascinating area of. Um, of studies and extremely important. So we applied then for a grant, uh, a discovery grant, which we got, and this enabled us to do studies, very detailed studies on uh, aerosol for, from human expiration. So we built a tunnel, we put a person with, uh, with the head in the, in the tunnel, and then we studied the size distribution, concentrations, composition of these droplets, and as a function of different activities. So breathing speaking, kind of singing, it was not quite singing, but close to singing, ah, and, and coughing as well. So this allowed us to quantify this, showing that the size distribution spans from a particle a droplet smaller than one micron to well over uh, two uh, millimeters, the big ones, of course, not going very far, and therefore a potential for infection spread. We've then some, uh, done some more studies uh, with colleagues um, involved in um, caring for people with cystic fibrosis and with the bacterium Pseudomonas, uh, detecting its presence in, um, in, in such droplets, distance they travel, the time they spend, they stay infectious. So this again pushed this area of science quite significantly. But we were never able to uh, attract more funds for research on actually on the virus, on transmission of the virus. And this was the same as it happened after every epidemic, that one, once the epidemic is over, then it's very difficult to attract interest 
granting body of the world of the world to the issue of the epidemic and the uh, and infection transmission until the next one comes. There's a whole history um, written about this, how that interest spikes at the time of, of, of an epidemic and how it dies down then. What's going to happen now? Uh, of course, there's been a lot of um, papers published, um, published very quickly, some of them not really contributing to, to new knowledge. Sam pointed, uh, pointed out to the questions still open as they were open 100 years ago. I'm just hoping that this experience for which we are still going and will be going for, for months to come will really attract the attention to this important field and um, more knowledge will be generated. And this is not knowledge important at the time of, of an epidemic or a time of pandemic. We have epidemics every year. Every year we have seasonal flu. Every year we have colds and other epidemics, which of course are not as dramatic as, as COVID-19 is, but which um, re uh, relate to well, a lot of stress, a lot of illness, a lot of economic losses, and being able to um, protect people against this and understanding what, what are the ways of lessening the impacts of such common epidemics would be of great benefit to, to humanity. So I'm just hoping that this experience now will help us to generate more knowledge. Yeah, I think you're right. It's definitely when it's on the forefront of people's minds, you know, a lot more research will be put into it. So it'll be interesting to see all the new papers and research that come out in the months following. You mentioned the dogma about the one arm's distance. Did your subsequent research that you spoke of determine a different distance as opposed to the 1.5 metre that we've been um, told about recently? So it's a dogma, almost close to 100 years old dogma, which is quite significant. Yes, we've shown our studies. First of all, our studies show that the size distribution, as I mentioned, of these droplets is from uh, below one micrometer to, to much bigger. Now, dro droplets of, uh, of this size of uh, one micrometer, they can stay in the, suspended in the air for prolonged periods of time. So gravity is not the main um, force taking them away, uh, taking them out from the air. So they don't fall as such. They are subjected to air current, to, to air movement, and therefore they, they are just staying uh, suspended. This is, gen this is general um, science of uh, the size of uh, particles in the air, but we in fact did specific studies to demonstrate that they travel much, uh, much longer distances than that one, one meter arm's length. The tunnel which I mentioned revealed, initially it was uh, just to show the size distribution, but then we um, extended it to demonstrate that these uh, droplets can travel much uh, longer. We were able to um, extend it to four meters because, well, as you can imagine, any tunnel or any uh, setup like this has to be housed somewhere. And with the space being a premium at any university or any hospital, eventually it was moved to a hospital, um, we couldn't um, um, have it longer. But we were able to show that these uh, droplets and large quantities of these droplets travel very happily 
the whole distance of the tunnel, which is four meters, which already provides evidence that it's not just arm's length one meter, but much longer. And of course, from what we can uh, then see from uh, COE, they can stay, uh, they can travel much, uh, much longer than this, than much uh, longer than four meters. There was then the question: What happens to the um, uh, to the uh, to the content and biological content? As I mentioned before, we were not able to do studies on the viral content of such droplets, but on the bacterial content in the context of Pseudomonas bacteria, which is of particular uh, significance to people uh, infected people with cystic fibrosis. So what we did, we, we did um, a kind of an extension. We can call it this to this tunnel. Uh, it is um, imagine a rotating cylinder, rotating drum, and we kept these droplets suspended inside this drum, which was rotating so that uh, centrifugal force kept them. Um, and uh, we showed that 45 minutes, that was the extent of the experiment, the uh, lar a large number of the Pseudomonas bacteria were still intact in this drum. So, um, so it is time and distance. As I said, we didn't do this on, uh, on the viruses, but that's what, uh, what's, uh, what's understood. If, if they are suspended, in the air, stay suspended in the air, they can remain stable and infectious. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. I can't believe that it's, you know, as long as it's not coming out of the air due to gravity. I mean, if someone was then to walk through it, well, that it doesn't matter. The distance, it's also a factor of time as well. So it's very, very interesting. Lydia, you advise national and international agencies on public health issues, ranging from disease transmission, obviously, to acute and chronic health effects of various air pollutants. Can you tell us about your role in advising the World Health Organization? And also, how can people with domain expertise contribute good public policy. I've been working with the World Health Organization for over 20 years on different initiatives, um, uh, helping develop different guidelines and on different projects looking specifically of various aspects of air pollution. As I mentioned, there have been a number of different um, guideline documents in which, to which I contributed and of development of which I, part I participated. Now, when there is a work um, to develop guidelines, say, against uh, on indoor air pollution and health, there is one, there are several guideline documents like this in which I participate. Uh, there is always a group of experts involved in this and invited by the WHO to cover all the disciplines uh, necessary, the scientific medical disciplines necessary to um, understand the whole picture. This, as, you, as we've discussed, this is uh, all very multidisciplinary. So starting from the understanding of the science of pollution, human exposure to this, but then we, do, we uh, include toxicology, we include epidemiology, and we include many other aspects. So, um, one person with their own expertise in whatever whatever it is wouldn't be sufficient. So there's always the always a goal. So my contribution has always been from the point uh, from the angle of the of understanding science of, of air pollutants 
and then link to, 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 to the exporter, human exporter products. But as I said, there have been others who are taking them this to toxicology, epidemiology, and so on. One of my biggest roles um, in terms of my collaboration with the WHO has been the one over the last few years being a co-chair of the uh, guideline development group of um, air quality, for air quality. The current WHO air quality guidelines were set up in uh, 2005. I was involved in this document as, uh, as well. However, it's 2005, it's a long time ago, new science, new knowledge has been generated and there was a, a, um, an understanding that this guideline uh, document needs to be updated in a way almost a new generated considering how, how big a body of evidence has been generated. So this process has been going now for over three years. As I said, I'm co-chair of this uh, big activity. We are hoping that next by next year the document would be finalized and the guidelines would be available. This is um, this activity involvement with the WHO involvement with this um, multidisciplinary groups uh, conveyed by the WHO to set up um, uh, guidelines or develop other um, understanding of other topics is perhaps the most fascinated uh, activities in which I'm involved. Since there are always top experts invited to participate uh, in such activities. So whatever question is asked from whatever angle, there's always somebody in the room who can answer this question from this particular angle. So as I said, it's been a very, very rewarding and very interesting uh, activities. We've been talking about the WHO. This is an ultimate body uh, providing uh, guidelines uh, relating environmental exposure, health and, and, uh, and air pollution. But at each level, there is a policy making. So there is national policy making, there is state policy making, and there is often much more local policy making. How to get involved? Well, first, first of all, it's important to, um, to have an understanding of our uh, own discipline's contribution to this um, a particular question or field. But then the next step is to have interest in this. Um, sometimes it happens that you are invited to, uh, to join an activity if based on the uh, scientific contribution publications and so on, um, you are a person who generated science. But uh, on, in many other situations, you can put up your hand. And if, let's say, there are agencies, state or uh, national agencies calling for um, contribution to policy documents or to uh, comments on proposed uh, policy documents. So uh, participating in this and voicing your uh, view from your area of expertise this is one way of getting involved with uh, policy making. Yeah, that's a great point to be able to contribute to such guidelines um, in more of a local setting, which is very exciting. I know I've, I've read some of the, the guidelines that have been put forward for comment and I'm a bit early in my career, I think, to contribute, but it's, it's very exciting to read them and to see what comes out. So your research is both important and urgent, yet its translation into effective public policy is obviously not easy. 
How have you kept yourself motivated over your impressive career spanning more than three decades? I'm not sure whether I, I need to get myself motivated. That The motivation is, is in me, I'd say. Uh, it's fascinating. It's interesting. Science is interesting and particularly this science, multidisciplinary science, uh, at, uh, at all the stages of progress of the science, something new comes up, something, some new doors open, and there's never end of this interest and amazement with, with science. So you can never um, get tired of this. You can never stop being motivated. I like very much working with, uh, obviously, with, uh, with, our, with, with my team, with, with other people, and particularly uh, with um, young students, uh, PhD students, I always have several PhD students, because um, watching them developing interest uh, in, in the field of their studies, watching them progressing, watching them discovering lots of uh, new things on the way, this, this is very rewarding. So this is one other motivation for me to work with, uh, with these young people uh, to help them progress with their careers. But another element uh, when we are talking about the public policy uh, or motivation about the translational aspect of science is that seeing that science can help actually people is a very important factor for me. I must say that since, um, just giving the example of uh, infection transmission, seeing, um, a, a developing understanding of the way infection, infections can be transmitted in everyday life, in places where there's in, inadequate ventilation, and understanding what can be done about this to prevent this, and in a way implementing this in in our settings on, on a scale are good. I can't stop not to voice my views on this. This is the right things to do. This is, this is the thing to protect people. This is uh, the way to help prevent illnesses. The same um, visiting and watching uh, people, uh, as I've mentioned before, in, uh, in the Pacific Island countries, but not only in many other places, cooking on open fire. And looking at these babies on uh, mother's backs, uh, inhaling this dense smoke, and seeing how big impact this would have on this, these babies, on the life of the children and the adults, it is hard for me not trying to do something to prevent this, because we know that it can be prevented. It shouldn't be happening. In many situations, there is no awareness. People, uh, these mothers or these communities, they don't know that their health problem. In other situations, they know or suspect, but they are um, powerless to do anything about this. So trying to find ways to help them and to protect them, I will be always trying to do this. Yeah, it's amazing to hear your passion for your field. It's, it's great to hear that, you know, you assist the, the students um, when you meet them and hopefully they'll you'll pass on your passion to them as well. It's, it's been really amazing to speak to you, Lydia. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Grace. Thank you for inviting me to this talk. With that, I would like to thank our guest, Dr. Lydia Morawska, and our interviewer, Grace Formentin, for joining us on this episode of Atmospheric Tales. In addition to our production team and our interviewer, the questions for this episode were contributed by Dehe Solanki, 
Iliani Izani, Minakshi Kushwaha, Doug Collins, and Kanan Patel. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to ask questions to our upcoming guests. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe and share.